The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. How's everybody doing this morning? Hey, I have some announcements for you. First of all, just curious, how many of you walked in at 10 till and were like, what do you mean they've started already? Just curious. We're going to retrain you. Um, we are actually, I'm just warning you in advance, trying to make an effort to start on time now um, out of mercy to our children's ministry volunteers. Just giving you a heads up on that. So uh, there you go. I realize that's, that's going to be hardest on me than anyone, that's for sure. But that's the goal. Um, I do have a couple of announcements for you. Um, huddle groups meet throughout the valley tonight, just an important part of who we are and what we do here. Opportunity to gather together with uh, other people throughout the church and get to know people. It's the, uh, the, the place where we, we seek to do um, a lot of application and ministry and serving and things like that. And it's just a great place to find um, just important gospel-centered communities. So I want to encourage you guys to get involved in those. Um, I lost my announcement list, so I'm trying to wing it off the top of my head. Um, there was something we were going to announce. Is Kathy here? What was it? I know the, the fundraising thing. What was the other thing? What? Drew. Oh, is Drew in here or is he with the kids? Is Drew Wilkerson in the room? He just left? Oh, he just went to go with the kids. Ah, oh, bummer. I should have warned him in advance. Um, Drew Wilkerson has been serving us, most of you don't even know this, through the summer as an intern here at the church. He uh, um, is a teacher here in the Valley, teacher's assistant, works with kids in the Gold, Val- or Gold Hill School District. And um, this summer during their break, he kind of came on staff as a temporary intern and has just This guy has faithfully served your kids and worked his tail off to just minister to kids and work here at the church in general, and so I just wanted to thank him. So if you guys know Drew, when you see him, make sure you give him a big hug, because uh, today's his actual last day. He starts working with the junior hires now to coach football coming up, so we're really thankful for Drew. Um, And then finally, there's this one other thing. Uh, I'm going to do something. We're going to do something after church today that I need some help with. Um, How many of you people have seen the Ice Bucket Challenge? How many people have seen this? Okay, a lot of you guys. How many have no clue what I'm talking about? All right, so here's the deal. Someone came up with a genius idea to raise money for ALS. And what they did is they started this thing called the Ice Bucket Challenge, wherein someone starts, they've got a big like igloo cooler full of ice water, like ice and everything, freezing cold. They make a donation to ALS research, and then this, this igloo cooler of ice water gets dumped on them. If they endure that, they then get to call out three other people. And so what has happened is it's gone completely viral. You could spend hours on the internet looking at these videos where celebrities and sports stars and all these famous people are calling one another out and doing the ice bucket thing. And, and it's just become this incredible thing. And this, this one um, particular office, their fundraising this time last year for the month of August was somewhere around $18,500 for the month. Their fundraising this year in August today is over $5 million. It's unbelievable how this thing has kind of gone nuts. So me and the pastors here, we're talking. And uh, so here's the deal. I mean, uh, we are definitely for ALS research, so that's fine. But, but we actually have some things here in the valley that are on our hearts. And so this is what we're going to be doing. And this is where I need your help. After service, your pastoral staff is going to take the ice bucket challenge, like within five, six minutes after service, right out here in the patio where we had church last week. 
We're going to be doing this, and we will be making a $500 donation on behalf of the church to the Pregnancy Resource Center here in town. Um, the Pregnancy Resource, that's, yes, please clap for that. So the, the Pregnancy Resource Center provides um, abortion alternatives to people who have uh, unexpected pregnancies, particularly young women, um, training them on how to raise children, providing resources for them and materials from diapers to carriages, you name it. Do we still use carriages? Is it called carriages? I don't know. What's it called now? Bike? Strollers. There we go. <laughs> as soon as I said it, I knew it was wrong. Anyway. Those sorts of things, and, uh, and they also provide really good post-abortion counseling for those who go through the inevitable grief and difficulties after that. And it's a, a program that, that we actually support monthly here as a church, and we feel very strongly about. So here's what we're going to do. All four of us as the pastors here at Heritage are going to do the ice bucket thing. And I want you guys, as many of you as... I'm begging for help. Like, we want a crowd of people behind us as we do this, like cheering and yelling and all this stuff. The bucket's going to get dumped on us, and then we're going to call out five other pastoral staffs throughout the valley and challenge them to do the same thing. So later today, we'll make our little YouTube video, we'll put it up online, and then I'm going to text these other pastoral friends of mine and say, hey, you might want to check this out, and we'll see if they, we'll just see what they do with it. You know what I mean? Um, so we have some fr our friends at First Baptist Church and Greg Spires and his staff, uh, Medford Naz, uh, Dale Schaefer and his staff, Westminster Presbyterian, greatest Presbyterian name ever. Their pastor's name is Barnabas Sprinkle. Now, how does it get any better than that, right? So um, him and his staff, uh, Community Bible Church in Central Point, Pete Slusher, good friend, him and his staff, and who am I forgetting? Oh, Kenner Gottsman and Rogue Valley Fellowship. We're going to get them too. So um, actually, we should throw Jim Wright into that anyway too, you know what I mean, with Mountain <laughs> Fellowship. So we can do six. So that's what we're going to be doing right after church, making a donation. Cindy Bright, who's the director of the uh, Pregnancy Resource Center, is here with us today and is going to join us for this afterwards. So we're going to give the donation. We will get freezing cold water dumped on us, and then we're calling these guys out. So I would love it to look like it's a church challenge and have a whole mess of you guys behind us. So we'll do it really quickly right after service. You guys in? Okay, cool. <laughs> and for some of you men, it's an opportunity to dump water on us, and that's probably a reason enough in and of itself. So um, anyway, that's enough for announcements. Let's get into the word. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. And today we are going to cover not much territory, one verse. <clears throat> if you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up nice and high. We've got some that we would love to loan to you. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, that is a gift to you. Um, we believe it's important that everyone have access to the Word, and uh, if you do own one, just borrow it, leave it in your chair, we'll pick it up after the fact, and just keep your hand up nice and high, we will get to it. But turn in your Bibles, iPads, phones, whatever it is, to first, or 2 Corinthians, excuse me, chapter 4, and we will be in verse 7 today. And it says this, let's read this together. I don't, whatever translation you got, we don't care, just everybody all at once, let's read this together. Verse seven says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Let's read that one more time. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God, we pray, Lord, that your spirit would be in this place and that you would teach us or that you would move even through this very room, awaken minds to your truth, reveal your glory and your majesty to us. 
And that, Lord, we would be further moved in this this trail of sanctification, made more and more in your image by the end of this day than when we began, but for your glory and not ours. I pray, God, you would speak through the likes of me. You've used donkeys before. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would speak in this place, and as always, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O my King and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's important for us as we begin this particular verse to remember Paul's heart as he's writing this message. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he was writing to the church that he had planted five years after it planted to address some significant issues that were going on in the church, some horrible impropriety. From sexual immorality to lawsuits among members, the church was a wreck. And so when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he was sort of fired up. Loved them for sure, but dealing with some significant issues as he wrote to them. But as he writes 2 Corinthians, the tone is markedly different. It feels different. It reads different. The wording is different. And the reason is Paul is writing from a place of a broken heart. Paul has been through a lot in the now six more years since the previous letter and the back and forth controversies between the church. And at the real core of why he's most heartbroken as he writes this letter is the understanding that his own church and people who he would consider his own children have essentially turned their backs on him. There's a group of men who have come into the area. They are referred to by Paul as super apostles. And I assure you he's being sarcastic when he says that. But they've kind of come into the area, and they're very polished, very skilled and eloquent speakers, putting on a good show, and they've kind of won these guys over in Corinth, and in the meantime, thrown Paul completely under the bus. They're questioning his message, they're questioning his methods, they're questioning even his very appearance. And they're saying, look, this guy is not an apostle of God. This is not a guy who's teaching you should be following. I mean, for goodness sakes, look at him. How can that be one of God's chosen people? Look what he's been through. If God loved him and honored him and was using him in this leadership role, wouldn't God stand up for the guy from time to time? His very suffering is evidence that he is not one of God's chosen followers. And so Paul, amidst a lot of other things he's dealing with when he writes this letter, he's writing back to them to defend his own ministry, his own message, and himself. And I mean, if you could just imagine how many of you either have yourself or know people who have been through a situation where maybe a child that you raised, gave birth to, nurtured, invested in, sacrificed for, but then as the years go on and they grow older, things get in the way, rebellion ensues, and they reject you, turn against you, push away from you, don't want anything to do with you, and you find that this one that you had given your life for has turned their back on you. We know people that have gone through this, or some of us have been through it on one end or the other, (laughs) ourselves. And this is what Paul's dealing with. He writes to them in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, he said, you don't have many spiritual fathers. In other words, he's saying, look, I, I gave birth to you guys. I love you guys. I've given my heart and soul. I am desperately in love with you. And yet, these peddlers of a different gospel come into town and start throwing Paul under the bus and the people are chomping at the bit to believe it. And so Paul writes a tear-stained letter, a letter written from pain and difficulty where he is 
against his own desires, really having to defend his very message. He's very discouraged. And this particular chapter, chapter 4, more than any of the others, others really shows this. I mean, it's bookended with a specific phrase. First one of chapter 4 starts by saying, we do not lose heart. And then you come back to verse 16 of chapter 4 as his little concluding paragraph, if you will, of this chapter. And he says, so we do not lose heart. And the reason Paul writes that seems obvious but is worth repeating and understanding. He's saying we don't lose heart because there's a lot of opportunity and reasons to lose heart. There is plenty of opportunity for discouragement. I mean, for for one thing, just the reality that we live in a broken, fallen world. This world is not the world that is designed to be. And you don't have to to watch more than five, ten minutes of the national news to understand that, especially in this day and age, right? Our Christian brothers and sisters are being slaughtered in Iraq right now. Um, I read an article by a, a man, and you, you should look this guy up and read some of his journals he's been writing, but, but he's the, uh, oh, what's the phrase, the cardinal or the bishop, or it's, uh, uh, it's one of the more denominational faiths, oh, I cannot remember his name, but, but in Iraq, is writing these articles about the ministry he's doing for Christianity in the Iraqi nation, and then what's happening as ISIS moves in, and it was heartbreaking, because one week he's telling the story about how in the midst of all this stuff, he's baptizing people into the faith, and the gospel's going forth, and people are being saved, and he talked about one kid in particular who gets baptized and gives his life to Jesus, and the next Next week, he's writing about the fact that that very same kid was literally cut in half by Arabs. It's an awful situation going on there. We live in a broken world, and we have disease and illness, mental illness and discouragement and sadness and sickness and all of these things, wars and violence, Ferguson, for goodness sakes, and the heartache going on there. We live, there's a lot of opportunity just looking at that for discouragement. But look, you don't have to look even outside the ministry and, or the church walls or the church family walls. I mean, we can have this perception, and really, uh, Christianity around the 80s or so did a lot of this. Um, we need to put on this perception that says that, yes, the world is broken and all this is going on, but here within the church, everything's fine. And we're not struggling with nothing, and so we kind of had that happy Jesus season where we just kind of put on the smiley faces, and no matter what's going on, you would ask people, how you doing? And they would say, fine. We talked about this last week. Fine? Didn't you get your leg bit off by a shark yesterday, lost your job, and your wife left you all at once? Yeah. But Jesus is good. And you're like, you are faking it. Jesus is good, but you are faking it. And there's sort of this perception, and we felt like the leaders of the church in those areas and those specific streams or denominations felt like it was important for Christians to portray constant joy no matter what's going on. And we can't admit struggles or difficulties because that will take away from the perception in the world around us that Jesus is able to conquer the difficulties that we face. And we want people to feel like if they come to Jesus that he's the answer. And he is the ultimate answer. He's going to deal with sin. He's going to deal with death, all of those things. But the reality is that following Jesus in actuality in the broken world we live in now often sets you up for more opportunity for discouragement and difficulty because now you've just put on the uniform of the army that is against the powers and principalities of the world that we live in. You are now the world's enemy. 
And I'm not talking about just even people. I'm talking about the power, Satan himself, who, who Paul himself describes him as the Lord of this earth. That he's the one who now, as you choose to follow Jesus and to glorify God, what you're saying is, is I want to manifest Jesus in the world today. I want to live like Jesus. I want to treat others like Jesus did. I want to be as much as I can within my frailty like Jesus. And I want the Holy Spirit to lead me in these things. Well, you just became an absolute target for the enemy. And so following Jesus doesn't mean you have less opportunity for discouragement. It actually gives you more opportunity for discouragement. I mean, I, I have absolutely found this to be the case. I mean, we, we can look at Christian leaders, and, and it can look like everything's all together and everything's working out, but in reality, man, everyone struggles. Everyone suffers with stuff. And I have found opportunity for discouragement around every corner since I've been pastoring. And that's in spite of great successes and amazing things that the Lord is doing. I mean, here in our church, there are awesome stories and awesome things that are going on, and it's been an awesome season, and yet, and Satan still comes at me with opportunities for discouragement all the time, or I bring them on to myself. Um, I'll give you some examples. One of, one of them, since day one at Heritage, has been worship for me. Worship has been a source of discouragement, which is weird. Because isn't worship supposed to be something that is encouraging as we turn our eyes to Jesus, right? But for the first five years, pretty much, of Heritage existing, I was the primary worship leader. We had other people here and there and in different seasons, but it was usually me. And that was really difficult for me because the, the responsibility and the work that has to go into leading worship and preparing a worship set and doing all that stuff and writing a sermon and being able to put everything that you want to into that coming up with the week ahead, that was very burdensome for me. And what would end up happening is, is one of them would have to give. And inevitably, it was always worship. So what would end up happening when it was my turn to lead worship, it was usually just me. Maybe I would grab a gal to sing with me, if that, because I didn't have opportunity to get together with anybody, to practice, to learn new songs, to do any of that kind of stuff, because I was focused on the sermon through the week. In fact, a lot of times it would be people contacting me, hey, I need to make the worship slides, or I need to make the worship pamphlet when we had those. You guys remember those things? And I need that. Do you have the songs? I'm like, oh, songs. I got to come up with some, like Saturday night at 8 o'clock. But the Lord then, so, so that was a, a constant source of frustration to me and, and difficulty because I would even interact with people and I heard people say things. I, I know they weren't trying to hurt my feelings, so if you were one who said this, please don't, don't read anything into this. But saying things like, I love the teaching at Heritage, um, I wish the worship was better. Or I'm praying that we would get a worship pastor one day. And I was in complete agreement with that. That wasn't hurting my feelings at all. I was in complete agreement with that. And so worship for like five years was kind of this constant frustration for me in a lot of ways. And then, praise God, we got Sam. And the Lord blessed us by giving us the opportunity to bring Sam on staff. And Sam has brought the worship quality to a completely different level. The, music, the musical level. And we, I can see it in I just, as I just watch people sing and worship. Um, but then, okay, you've made advancements, things are going good, but then there's more opportunity for discouragement for that. Because we're, we're, we're also not worshiping the same way that we did five years ago. And for some people, the, some of you got really accustomed to that quiet, kind of softer style of worship, which I really like a whole lot too. So I, I'm not throwing you under the bus at all. Please know my heart in this. I'm just expressing my own, the, how this has been a struggle for me. But there's a lot of people that when we do sets like we do today with the drums up there, that's not a fan. 
and don't like it, and it's a style issue, or it's a noise issue, or whatever the case may be, and, and so it's not about me saying, no, you're wrong, get over it. What I'm saying here is that I would take discouragement on because my desire and our desire as a staff is wanting to please and serve everybody. And understanding that everybody has these different ways in which they worship or they, they sing and just different things that they're drawn to. And so we wrestle with that, okay? Then, then we're, gonna, we're gonna mix it up a lot and we've prayed over these kinds of things and, and what we've really sort of landed on is that we really are gonna mix things up. So one week you might have an acoustic set, which actually is my favorite when Sam does the full acoustic. If you were here Wednesday night, that was amazing. I loved it. And then some weeks, Sam's going to do the full band from time to time, and we're going to mix it up because we have a lot of different personalities. And so I had to adopt the, uh, the belief. I believe God put it on my heart to say, okay, so the week that I come in, if it's not the style or whatever that I like, that's my week to serve the other people in the church who this is the one that they do like. And so I'm, I'm going to sing and worship no matter what because the style doesn't have anything to do with it. But I'll be honest with you, for those of you that you go, I, I just don't, I don't know if I like all these changes. I want you to understand, I, I, I struggle with that. Like my, my heart goes out because I, I have this people-pleasing tendency in me that wants to please everyone. And especially when it comes to something like worship, that is absolutely impossible. Because it's artistic, it, it's subjective by nature. There's always going to be a lot of different opinions and things on that. And so we wrestle with that and we try to get better at what we do. But that's probably always going to be one of those things that I'll have to contend with. Not just in worship, but just in the ministry in general. People have different expectations. The church is going to do this for me, or the church is going to do that in the community. And when we can't do that, that I wrestle with that. Even infinitely bigger than that, one of the things I wrestle with more than that is when people leave. Whether it be moving, or whether it be moving on to a different church, or whatever the case may be, man, that is something that for me, God has worked on me to help me learn, like, you can't take this kind of stuff that personal. Well, that's not true. That's what I've tried to tell myself. But in reality, it should be personal. If a pastor loves his sheep, he should take it. It shouldn't be an easy thing to see people leave. Um, I, I think it would be dangerous for me to be in a place where I go, they left, whatever. Um, but the idea is, I think God's working in my heart to say, you just keep being faithful. You just keep doing what I'm asking you to do. Don't worry so much about that. But make the phone call and tell someone you miss them. Send someone the email to say, I haven't seen you. That's just been a difficult thing that I've had to wrestle through for years um, because when you pour into someone and you develop relationships and love someone and then you see them move on and you're not gonna have that same kind of close fellowship you had before, that's a hard thing. But maybe even the hardest thing even than that is when, let's say, there's a couple that I'm counseling that's going through hardship or, or a young person who's going through social issues or depression or whatever might be going on and we're meeting with them and we're pouring into them and we're praying with them and we're doing whatever we can to try to help them and and you see it's just not going anywhere the divorce becomes inevitable the depression gets worse the alcoholism returns whatever the case may be i'll tell you guys the number of times those sorts of things have come up and I have landed on my knees and fell so prey to discouragement and Satan's voice that's saying, see, you don't know what you're doing, Jeff. You're not helping them. You don't have the answers. If they had someone who actually knew what to do, maybe this wouldn't be happening. And if any pastor tells you they haven't thought that before, they're Superman or they are lying. There is plenty of opportunity for those sorts of discouragement because that's what Satan wants to do, right? I mean, doesn't he want to discourage you from following Jesus? 
And doesn't he want to make you think that doing what God puts in your heart, that giving the counsel of the Bible to other people is a waste of time or doesn't work? Isn't that what Satan does? We talked about it last week, how Satan wants to undermine the word of God. So there's a reality. I mean, look, this week alone, has it not taught us that even the people that we think are the most immune from discouragement are absolutely prey to it? As we lost an icon in our entertainment industry who was known for laughing and joy and jovial, just over-the-top happiness, and then to find out he was horribly, horribly depressed and discouraged to the point that he would take his own life. It doesn't matter who you are. Somehow we think depression and discouragement and those things only comes for the weak. It is not true. I mean, if Paul's not enough example for you, even the world leaders that we face, Winston Churchill, one of the greatest leaders in the history of the world, faced horrible discouragement and opposition. Early on in his, uh, his time there in politics in Europe, he recognized the growing threat of Nazi Germany and what Hitler was planning well before a lot of other people did. And so when he started building up the military and started doing a lot of things over there in the face of this growing threat, a lot of people didn't believe him. And there was a huge opposition party that grew in response. And he was hated in many places. In fact, there's a story where he was about to give a speech at one place. And as he was about to give the speech, the the woman who was there to introduce him said, aren't you excited, this huge crowd that's gathered out here to to, to hear your speech? And he goes, well, at first I was, and then it occurred to me, If this was my public hanging, the crowd would be twice as big. And and really my favorite story regarding him with this, um, there was a playwright you guys know of, George Bernard Shaw, around the same time. And and there in London, he had a play that was opening. It was going to be opening night, first showing for this particular play. And he was opposed to Churchill and his programs and policies. And so he famously put two tickets to opening night for his play, coming up on a Friday night, put two tickets in an envelope, wrote a letter, and sent it to Churchill. And he said, hey, I've got a play showing up in town coming up soon. I would love for you to come join us Friday night on opening night. Here's two tickets. Bring a friend if you have one. Well, Churchill, he's no pushover, right? So he responded. He said, ah, man, I would love to be able to join you for that play. I really want to do it. The problem is I got something going on on Friday night and I can't make it. So I'm sending you these two tickets back. If you could send me two to the second night showing, that would be great. I'd love to come see it on its second night, if there is one. (laughs) Churchill was the man. But we all don't respond as wittily as Churchill. A lot of times when the arrows come, we we don't have a witty response. And a lot of times when the, the opposition or the discouragement or the depression comes, we can actually feel completely alone. We can feel like, what's the point of all this? I'm failing. It's all going bad. This is not gonna work. This is a crash landing. What am I going to do? So please remember When Paul writes 2 Corinthians, this is the kind of discouragement that he was prone to, that he was being attacked with. This and worse. I mean, he says literally, we despaired of life itself. We wanted to die. Great leader, Christian leader, the apostle Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain, looks like the man, no way. And he would say, but in reality, man, deep in, 
I wanted to die. There was discouragement coming from every direction, and we despaired of life itself. That's the heart when Paul writes this. And so chapter 4 is maybe the most emotion-packed chapters of all of these in this emotional letter. And he bookends it with, we don't lose hope. And then at the end of the chapter, we don't lose hope. Why do you think he was saying that? I think for one thing, he was probably preaching to himself. Any good preacher knows he's got to preach the stuff that the Lord is teaching him first. And he says we in here for a purpose. We don't lose hope. We've got lots of opportunity, but we don't lose hope. And maybe even in the letter, he's reminding himself over and over, we don't lose hope. But then nestled right in the middle of chapter 4, in the core of this particular chapter, is one of the most famous and well-known verses in the entire Bible, where in verse 7 he says, but, now, when I grew up in the Baptist church, we had this pastor that was obviously, or that was often oblivious to the uh, things that he was saying. And I can remember one time him teaching through this, and he would come to a verse like this, and he would say, oh, it's, there's all this stuff and difficulty and struggling, but we have, and he would pause, and he would go, oh, I love the butts of the Bible, and I would go, <laughs> I was a junior high kid. But when he puts this in here, this is on purpose. It makes it stand out in contrast to the rest of the things he's talking about. And so when he talks about the difficulties of ministry and the call that we're there, we're not to dilute the word, we're not to peddle the word, we're not to fall into the prey of all of these different things going on. And we're ministering in a world where they have been blinded by Satan and we have all of this opportunity for discouragement. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. In this one verse, Paul gives us three things that we've got to know and believe, church. Especially if you're discouraged. Especially if you're a leader. Especially if your desire is to walk like Jesus in the world around us. Three things. And in a tip of the hat to my old Baptist pastor, I'm going to start them all with P. The prize the place and the purpose. Number one, the prize. Paul says, we have this treasure. The last couple of weeks, we have revisited regularly the idea of the new covenant. And as Ezekiel says, God in the new covenant places his spirit into the heart of men who put their faith in him. He places his spirit into us. The problem is we do not understand this. The very fact that we can talk about the fact that God puts his spirit inside you and I without gasping in wonder proves without a doubt we do not understand the reality of this treasure that Paul's talking about. We are too busy being distracted by all sorts of things, things that, that fall apart. But I mean, think about what he's saying. Paul is saying that in the heart of the person who repents of their sin and turns to follow Jesus Christ, he has placed his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that in Genesis 1 hovers over the deep in the very creation of the world. Imagine the power. Have you been to the ocean? Have you seen the storms? This is the Holy Spirit that can separate the ocean from the land and that creates things out of nothing. This is the Holy Spirit he's placed in you. Think about all the times in Scripture when the glory of God shows up and men, especially in the Old Testament, they fall on their face in horror at what's before them. 
because it is a power they cannot comprehend and certainly can't equal, and they are terrified, and they fall to their face. That's why so many descriptions in the Old Testament, when God shows up, you'll see it. If you look it up, you'll see descriptions of the floor. The glory of God showed up, and I saw the floor. It was like topaz. Why were you looking at the floor? Because they were scared to death to look anywhere else. That same power and spirit has been placed inside you. Think about Job. Job who had lots of reasons to be discouraged. His family gone, his property gone, sores, suffering like we can't even possibly imagine and for no reason at all that he's possibly aware of. And he has a lot of questions. He doesn't lose faith in God, but he has questions. I don't understand. I don't know what's going on. And at a certain point, the Spirit of God shows up after all of these questions. And it says in Job 38, the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you. You make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Can you imagine that? That's why they laid on the ground, by the way, when the glory of God showed up. Can you imagine that? I mean, he was suffering and struggling. He didn't know why, and he was questioning, 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 and then God shows up, and he says, let me ask you something. Gird up your loins like a man. Where were you when I created the earth? There's this power. It comes to the point after this long question by God that Job comes to the conclusion, you are God, I am man, I will be quiet. And yet because of the new covenant, God says that same power, it's not one that we're sitting here answering to and humbled before, but he has placed that in you. Guys, the Bible even says that the angels who also terrified people when they showed up look with wonder at what God is doing that he would put his spirit in the likes of us. The angels in heaven who understand a lot more than we do look at that and they go, I don't get it. I don't understand it. And they don't get it, which is even more, it just puzzles me even more. I am convinced of this, that the single greatest hurdle to us in our growth into Christian maturity and to becoming the people that God has designed us to be and desires us to be is that we do not recognize how infinitely valuable God really is. If we really understood, if we really understood who he is and what he is and how much more infinitely valuable he is than anything that this world could possibly offer, if we knew that, oh, we'd be in so much of a better place. And this is what Jesus teaches in Matthew 6, 19. He says, hey, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth that moth and rust corrupt. Don't spend all your efforts on this stuff. It's junk. It's not going to last. It's going to let you down. It will never fulfill you. It is nowhere near as valuable as seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things will take care of themselves. But he also warns us, but no man can serve two masters. Where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be. But Paul says, listen, believer, you have this treasure in you. That's why C.S. Lewis writes and says, we are far too easily pleased. Wasting our emotions and our affections on things that are destined to pass away when the power of God has been placed within us. But here, here, I'll give you an example of how far we are from that understanding. 
We've all heard sermons and we've all heard teachings and, and read stuff about the reality that, man, if Jesus was all we had, that's all we need. We've all heard that. Often we've probably even said that. But if we're really honest, there's a little parentheses that we keep silent after we say that. If Jesus is all I had, that's all I would need. But I really hope that doesn't happen. That's usually the way it is. Because if we actually think about that exchange, doesn't that come off sort of depressing? Like, it's true, but it's going to make for a miserable life. It's going to make things really difficult. And it sounds depressing and burdensome and painful and hard. But, but that doesn't mean that this isn't good enough. That means we just don't understand. Because Jesus even says in his own parable, he tells a story about a man who's digging in this field and finds a treasure. And he sees how valuable this thing is in there. And so he buries it back up and he goes to the owner of the field and he negotiates to buy this piece of land, willing to pay whatever he has. In fact, it says he sold everything he owned to be able to buy this piece of land. But it says specifically, he went in joy to do it. He found something that was so valuable he knew, if I get rid of everything I own, I am still getting the better end of this deal. I will happily pay whatever they want. And that's just not like, well, we should have that sort of attitude. That's reality. The spirit of God and his presence, Jesus is the prize. And he is infinitely more valuable than that which we could become discouraged over in the world around us. And if the Lord would bless us with that great understanding, if we could grow in that understanding even more and more and more, we will find that is a really valuable tool for combating discouragement. Because heaven and earth can pass away, but I have Jesus And he's way more valuable than the rest of this stuff. Amen? So he is the prize. The second thing is the place. It says in jars of clay. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Or also other translations call it earthen vessels or clay pots. Um, We get mixed up in our culture, I think, sometimes on what's truly valuable. On what the important part is. And to us, well, the Bible even says man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So we know even from Scripture that we, we have this nature in us that is automatically inclined to view things in sort of a reverse order. And so uh, let me give you an example. Um, I brought an analogy here. Um, maybe your kids have done this before. Mine certainly have. Have your kids ever come up to you and they're like, hey, do you want some candy, Dad? And they have candy. And, and some of us, well, I guess really it depends on the day, but some of us outgrow some of the kids' candy from time to time. You know what I mean? And so maybe your kids would come up to you. How many of you guys, do you remember Pez? You guys know Pez? So if your kids come up to you, they got a little thing of Pez right here, and they're like, hey, Dad, you want some Pez? I'm like, nah. I mean, look, it's just, it's just little chalky, white, starchy. I mean, even Smarties are better than these, right? And it's not like it's a sweet tart. It's just a chalky little nothing. Nobody goes to just buy a roll of Pez. Nobody wants that, right? But... If they come to you like this, hey, Dad, you want some Pez? Well, you're like, wow, now that you bring it up that way, I think I'll have some Pez. And suddenly it changes, does it not? Now, it's the same candy. It's just dressed up a little bit different, right? Well, guys, this is how we can feel a lot of times about even our own worth within the kingdom of God. This is, by the way, this is a stolen analogy. Francis Chan did a thing way better than me, just so I can give credit where credit's due. And uh, this is Mike Wozniowski, or however you say his name, Monsters, Inc. He's wearing yellow, I think. Don't you think? 
But so here's the reality. This is what Paul has fallen prey to in this culture. A group of people came in, way more polished, way more eloquent, way more stylish, and suddenly the people of Corinth are valuing the package more than the prize that's inside. And this can happen with us. I mean, we can hear a passage and go, yeah, that's a great Bible verse, that's really good, but I don't, I don't know, I don't really want to do that. Yeah, but what if John Piper preached it? Ooh, now I'm in. Let me hear about that guy. Or, or well, I don't know, maybe Billy Graham, though, I'll listen to him preach. Oh, no. <laughs> Billy's old, I should be more careful with him. Um, I don't know, this is Jasmine. Beth Moore, maybe? I don't know, something like that. But this is the kind of thing that we can do. So this is what the, the temptation ends up being. Just like the people in Corinth in that day, we can start thinking in this sort of celebrity culture mindset. This is the people that are really valuable are the ones that are the most gifted, the ones that are able to package that differently. And so for me, I don't really have a place here. I mean, that's the accusation against Paul. You're not eloquent enough. You're not gifted enough to speak. You are just this boring little old Pez. But the scriptures point that out, that it's completely the opposite. That what God does is he takes this amazing, beautiful treasure, and instead of dressing it up, he's actually putting it in jars of clay. Now, there's a couple of things about jars of clay that would help you to keep in mind. Number one, jars of clay or clay pots are very, very fragile. You cannot drop one without it breaking. In fact, some of the Old Testament prophets, when they were trying to demonstrate what was going to happen to Israel if they didn't repent, they would take these jars of clay and hold it up and then drop them down on the ground. It would smash into all these people and it was supposed to be, or into all these pieces, and it was supposed to be a picture of what was going to happen to the nation if they didn't follow God. So they're very fragile. They're very weak. And you can think, man, but I'm weak. I'm not really I'm not really on God's team. I'm not really of value. No, you're a clay pot, just like the rest of us. Some of us cracked pots, but for sure. The second thing is, they're cheap. They're not real expensive. They're not, not really dressy. They're, anyone can afford them. And the third thing is, is they're really common. You can find them anywhere. When you go into the Middle East, one of the most common things that they find in all these different archaeological digs is pottery, and rarely is the pottery in one place, but they find it everywhere. It's, it's not about that polished exterior. It's not about that sort of celebrity mindset, if you will. The reality and the mystery is that God has taken this infinitely valuable treasure, and he has placed it inside the hearts of people like you and me. And though we might take sometime to try to polish up the exterior, and we might project ourselves in different ways to others. The reality is, is that we're just a bunch of clay pots, especially in comparison to the value of the prize that is within us. But who does that? Like, who takes something that valuable and stores it in such a way? I mean, who, you don't, you don't take an pl- expensive three, four carat diamond and put it into a plastic setting So why would God do such a thing? Well, that leads us to the third and last one, the purpose. It says, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. The power of God is far greater than we can imagine. It's been placed within those of you who have chosen to repent from your sin and follow Jesus, to be his disciples. And the power 
of God is far more than anything you or I can muster. Look, God's not a glory hog. It's not about, I'm going to talk trash about you and make myself look good. That's why you're just a bunch of clay pots and I'm the treasure. No, the idea is even found in the very word. It says the surpassing power. That means three different things, surpassing power. Number one, it means immeasurable. The power of God is absolutely immeasurable. His strength, his might, his wisdom cannot be calculated. Number two, surpassing means to go beyond. So let me ask you, what is it that's causing you discouragement? What is it that is causing you anger or frustration or pain? Whatever it is, from disease to opposition to whatever the case may be, what is it that's causing you discouragement? The power of God far surpasses that. It goes beyond You and I do not, within ourselves, have the power to go beyond all the troubles that face us. But God, his his power is limitless. It is immeasurable. It goes beyond anything that we could possibly be facing. And then the last one actually is this. It's kind of surprising. It's violent. The word surpassing surpassing can often also be translated violent. That That doesn't sound very godly. I don't know if you should use that one. I'll tell you what. There is coming a day... When the root of sin and death that has so easily beset us and discouraged us and caused us pain, it will be dealt with by God's power violently. And that's good news. There is a day when the things that weigh us down, when the opposition, Satan himself, the sin that has caused so much disease and so much heartache and relational problems and unemployment and starvation and children being hacked in half in Iraq, that will be dealt with once and for all in a violent way by the power of Jesus Christ. He came humble the first time. He comes on a horse with a sword next time. And that's good news. While it breaks our heart for those that are on the wrong side of that, and while it should motivate us to want to share the gospel of Jesus to all who do not know, aren't you glad sin doesn't win? Aren't you glad cancer doesn't win? Aren't you glad that God's power far surpasses anything? Are you an addict? That's powerful. But God's power far surpasses that. And there will come a day when that source of addiction, the spirit behind that will be dealt with violently and you will be set free. Are you struggling with cancer? Its days are numbered. Are you struggling with with sin? Are there relational issues? Are you just hurting? Are you old? He's going to talk soon about the fact that our outer bodies are wasting away. And let's face it, people, I'm noticing this. I'm in my 40s now. And, you know, you notice you start to get hurt and it, like, hurts forever now. You know what I mean? Like, you tweak something. You don't know how you did it and it just lasts for years. Those days are numbered. Those days are numbered. We will no longer have to look on with the youth with envy because our wasting away bodies will be restored by the power, grace, and mercy of Jesus Christ. And so when you're discouraged, Paul's whole purpose in this is to just say, will you just trust Jesus? Will you just believe the truth that he has placed a treasure within you? That you are not alone that you are not fighting a battle that you cannot win, that he has not left you in discouragement and despair. Turn to him and trust him, because that's the point. I mean, the idea is 
We have no ability within ourselves to save ourselves from these things, but God does. So turn to him. So trust him. Don't freak out. Trust Jesus. But how can I trust him? Because he endured the suffering for us. Because he went through the discouragement and the difficulty. He was abandoned. He felt the pain. He endured the death to set you and me free that we might live forever. And he then promises that for those of you that follow him, I don't want to give too much of next week again, but he goes on to say, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will bring us into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. At this time, I'm going to release the brothers to go and to grab the elements of communion. And we're going to take opportunity right now as a family to set our eyes upon the reality of the fact that Jesus has endured the suffering and pain that we deserved. To understand that though we may go through things that are difficult, that are painful, that press down on us, we may feel discouraged and despaired and isolating. We don't have to lose heart because the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has given us hope. And while we may still have problems we're dealing with in life here today, our greatest problem has been dealt with and the victory is absolutely assured. Amen? Not like you mean that. The victory is absolutely assured. And so that is a good thing. So God, we come before you, Lord, in worshipful adoration and grateful thanksgiving. Lord, in our weakness, when things get tough, we want so much to buckle or to turn and run. And Lord, we know that you are fully human. Your word even describes, Lord, how that same pressure came upon you, but much more than we can possibly imagine. And yet you endured. For the joy set before you, you endured the pain of the cross to save clay pots, sinners, wretches like us. So God, as we just take opportunity even right now to turn our eyes towards you, will you encourage people in this room, Lord, who are discouraged? May they realize that no matter what they deal with in the world around them, they are yours and you have won. Lord, will you help us to realize the truth and the majesty and the mystery of your spirit within us? Lord, may you lift up the chin of the downcast. May you give hope to those who are in pain. And Lord, may you again set, Lord, new affections in our hearts that we might look to that which is not seen, forsaking that which is.